Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hello, Don. J.J., it's that time of year. It's the best of. The most wonderful time time of the year. Yes, we actually are going to play clips from the fan favorites podcasts of the year. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to all 52, you can listen to, I don't know, we've got like six or eight or ten. Yeah. And they're just clips of the best kind of self-help, best practical tactics on growing your business. Yeah. Best stuff. And we're going to get started with Horst Schultz. No, that is not a steak sauce. It's a person. And he actually- An amazing person. He is an, an amazing, amazing person. person. Because he runs Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. Or yeah. he used to run Ritz-Carlton. Like, oh, yeah. It's just that. It's just, it's that, just that, that You know, that guy. <laughs> and it, he, he was a fantastic, he's an unbelievable, inspiring speaker, a very motivating human being. Yeah. And now he's sort of transitioned his career into just helping people understand the philosophy. Because really, you look at the success of that brand, and yes, it's a bunch of hardworking people. But a lot of times it comes down to this personality that just drove the whole thing, and he was that guy. And in this clip, we interview him. He talks about the importance of having a great mission statement and then repeating it over and over and over. We always say this internal and external communication is an exercise in memorization. You literally have to say it until people say it back to you, and then they get it. Then they get it. And he understood that. Let's just start in, JJ, and you'll introduce the next one. But this is Horst Schultz talking about the importance of repeating your mission statement and getting your team aligned. We talk at length here at StoryBrand about clarity, about the power of clarity. And I would imagine starting a top market sort of brand or segment of the brand You've got to have guiding principles, mission statement, core values, those kinds of things. And you're probably talking to a group of 50,000 business leaders. Half of them probably have a mission statement and core values. Half of them don't. And then the half that do, probably at least half of those, their mission statement is printed on a wall somewhere on a piece of paper, and they don't actually remember what it is. How important was it for you first to actually get some guiding principles down on paper and institutionalize those at the founding of a top market segment of a known brand? What you're saying is very generous because half of them don't have it. <laughs> I, much I wanted less. to be generous, yeah. I hope nobody gets angry with me. I spoke recently to a very fine company and it told about a vision statement, mission statement. Then I went and talked to at least 20 employees. None of them knew it. Yeah. So it's meaningless. We know that since Aristotle, we know that people want to have purpose and belonging. Your vision statement, your vision statement should be a purpose, an honorable purpose for which you work. What you want to be, when I read vision statements, they're really mission statements. A vision statement is something that you want to be, that would make you proud, that would make others proud. You have to develop a vision that is clear, precise, and then you have to question yourself, is that vision good for all concerned? Is it good for the employees? Is it good for the investors? Is it good for the customer? Is it good for society? Yeah. And if the answer is true, then you connect everybody to that vision. Then you tell everybody in the organization, here's the vision, here's the motive of the vision, and here's how that motive is good for you. Now you have an aligned organization. Everybody talks about a buzzword today, about alignment. Right. Well, you're not aligned unless everybody understands that. And everybody understands what the customer wants. Everybody understands where the company is going, what the motive is, 
what's good for them and everybody is in a customer. Now you have alignment. Alignment doesn't mean walking behind each other. How did you create yours? I mean, did you get into a room by yourself and think about it or did you get a group of people together? How did you create that first? Did you call it a vision statement or a mission statement? We called it a vision statement, but we also created a mission statement. A mission statement is your mission of what you're doing today, gotcha. which should lead you to your vision. They're two different things. Okay. One is desirable down the road, a dream. The other one is what you're doing. We're being excellent to the customer. We care for the customer, which will lead to our being superior to the competition and being the best in the world. Beautiful. That's what it is. So we sat down with a few creators of the company and dreamed about where do we want to be in a few years from now? Who are we? Otherwise, if we become larger, the bureaucracy will forget who we are. We have to put it in writing on where we want to go. Otherwise, the bureaucracy that will be developed invariably will forget it unless we have it in writing. In fact, we give it in writing to every single employee. I was going to ask that. How do you institutionalize it? How do you get it from the boardroom into the subconscious and conscious, collective conscious, if you will, of every single team member in the organization? It becomes part of the teaching process. So the first day anybody comes to work, that's what we teach. We don't teach function. We taught who we are, what is the vision, why that is our vision, how it is good for all concerned, what is the mission, what are we doing now, etc. We aligned the employees behind that. And here's what the guest wants. That's all taught the first and second day. We don't teach function the first couple of days. After a few days, we start teaching function. And then what we did, in order to not forget it, we broke it down in 24 components. And every day, before every shift, one component is taught before every shift to every employee in every hotel. Wow. So it's not forgotten. Just during a stand-up meeting, you do this? A stand-up meeting. Every single day, 24 points. Today, you have point 11. If you get a complaint, you own it, and it's explained. In 24 days from now, you hear it again. The first component is who we are. Hmm. The second is our vision. The third is our mission. And done are the pieces that gets us there. Are core values included in those 24 pieces? Absolutely, yes. Can you share with us how you came up with your core values? Is it a similar process? We sat down together. Who are we? What's valuable to us? Whom do we serve? Well, we serve the owners. So we put that value in there. We serve the guests. We put that value in there. We serve the employee that put that value in there. We serve the society. We put those values all in there. We knew already it's good for all those concerned. And then we stated how we are serving them as core value. That was pretty good, JJ. So good. Who's next? So this now is one of my favorites from the year. Yeah. Chris Voss. FBI negotiator. FBI negotiator. <laughs> like Literally, just, it's like if you're in a hostage situation, he's the guy to get you out. And I feel like I use that every day in the content room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. With Kula and I about <laughs> escape from being a Let hostage yourself. Go. No. <laughs> yeah. You do that all the time. But the fact that he would come on and like just deals at that kind of high level of negotiation yeah. is pretty amazing. But there was one thing in particular that stood out to me me from mm -hmm. the interview. I mean, there was lots, but there's one thing in particular because it goes against what I usually think, and that's in negotiation, don't go first. Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive. Yes, and he talks about why in this clip. So here is part of our interview from FBI negotiator Chris Voss. 
And literally, when you're negotiating with somebody, let's say there's a kidnap situation back in your FBI days, are you listening to find out if they're a fight, flight, or make friend kind of person? All right, so two types of negotiations. Kidnapping negotiation is a very different negotiation than people trapped in a bank. Okay. So kidnapping negotiation is a commodities exchange, and the guy on the other side is going to be the exact profile of the procurement negotiator in every business. Really? <laughs> procurement people, contracts people match up almost exactly the same as, as the negotiators for international kidnapping. So when you're dealing with a kidnap situation, it's not like their adrenaline is really pumping and running and they're a little crazy in the brain. I mean, obviously, I don't want to affirm a kidnapper, but this is a business transaction to them. thousand percent. Wow. And so they're calm. Yeah. It's another day at the office for them. They're trading the commodity. The commodity happens to be people. But if I get bent out of shape over that, that's my problem, not theirs. Wow. And so they got somebody. You want that somebody back. They've got some demands. They want some people let out of prison wherever in Turkey. They're saying what they want, right? Is that what happens first? Or do you not even let them say what they want? You come in and say, okay, here are the ground rules. Who opens the negotiation? Now, the smart negotiator always lets the other side go first. Is that right? I mean, I've heard the opposite before, that the smart negotiator sets the price or whatever, and that's the gravity of the negotiation. You're saying let them go first. Why? Who would you hear that from? I can't tell you because I don't want to throw them under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) My academic brothers and sisters at Harvard Law School, at Wharton, at uh, Harvard Business School, they'll all tell you that the smart negotiator goes first. Yeah, that's, I mean, I've always. So you ask what their data. Does Warren Buffett say that? No. Does Oprah Winfrey say that? No. The top practitioners, the majority of them, not all of them, now there are some of the top practitioners that want to go first. But the top practitioners who want the data, I want you to go first. That's data I want. I want to get you talking. There's some people that say the secret of negotiation is the art of letting the other side have your way. (laughs) I hope everybody everybody caught what you just did. That's pretty fantastic. I'm going to get you talking. Yeah. What I want to do is I want to get you bidding against yourself in some form or another. And I'll only do that by being deferential, by being punching some emotional intelligence buttons. You're punching the emotional intelligence buttons to find out what they want or what they really want. And is the key, I'm trying to learn here, is the key to not assume that you know what they really want in the situation where if I open up with the opening chip, right, I'm assuming that I know what you want and there may be something that really surprises me about what you want and I'm trying to find that out. Is that right? I'm making two assumptions if you want to go first. So you know what the other side wants and that you know what the best deal is. Gotcha. And you've got to tease that out of them. And you do that by hitting emotional intelligence buttons. What are those buttons? Well, uh, first of all, I, you know, I need to get you to drop your fears a little bit. Uh, we're wired to be fearful. It's a survival mechanism. It's a survival mechanism. There's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter who you are. Warren Buffett's wired to be fearful. Oprah Winfrey's wired to be fearful. Jihadi John is wired to be fearful. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is wired to be fearful. It's part of the human nature condition. It's the way you're built. Yeah. So that being a given, I need to find some ways to dial your fears down. It's not that hard. It's very counterintuitive. Most people won't do it because they're afraid of it and because they're wired to be fearful. That's one of the buttons. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get you correcting me. How do I get you to dial down your fear? Can you give us at least one tip on how to do that? Sure. Do an inventory of your gut instinct of everything you'd want to deny. 
everything I want to deny. There's never going to be a situation you're going to walk into where you don't want to say to the other side, look, I don't want you to think that we're bullies here. I don't want you to think we're being disrespectful. I don't want you to think we're pushing you around. Anything that you would want to say, I don't want you to think. Now, what you've done intuitively is identify the other side's fears. I love that. I love you know. I love that he says it, you're really trying to find something to collaborate on yeah. in a negotiation. Yeah, I use I have to use this all the time here in the content department. <laughs> Is that what you're going to bring up? Is how, how much you have to negotiate with Kula and I all the time? <laughs> Speaking of difficult ex- work experiences, <laughs> our, our next the our, king of transitions, <laughs> king of transitions. Our next guest was Michael Hyatt, and he was one of our favorites. And he talks about this sort of compass that you you think about. What what you need to be working on and where you need to be spending your life and yeah. one of those is the drudgery zone which you don't want to be working on things that you you just can't stand the desire zone things that yeah. you want to be working he's got this whole compass to help you figure out what you need to actually be focusing on more and what you need to be focusing on less and I took his his free to focus workshop and I'm telling you man I cut out so much stuff out of my life and yeah. recreated my perfect week and all this kind of stuff here's a little clip you know going into the new year gonna one of the best things you can do is let go of some stuff here's Mike talking about how you decide what to let go of what to do. Imagine a two by two matrix, you know, four boxes, and imagine that the axes are passion, what you love and what you don't love, yeah. and what you're good at or proficient at and what you're not proficient at. Now rotate that 45 degrees so that one of those quadrants is at the north end of the compass. So true north. True north in the freedom compass is where your passion and your proficiency come together, things that you love to do, things that deeply satisfy you. And on the other hand, things that you're really good at, things that you're proficient at, especially as measured by the fact, the objective reality, that people are willing to pay you to do that thing because you're that good at it. Yeah. So we call that the desire zone. The more you can spend time in your desire zone, the stuff you're made to do, the more profitable your business will be, the more impact you'll make in the world, the more job satisfaction you'll have. The opposite end of that, due south, is your drudgery zone. This is the stuff you don't love, the stuff you're not good at, and the stuff that, frankly, is a grind. And so when I left Thomas Nelson, as you know, I was the CEO and the chairman there, and I left, suddenly found myself a solopreneur, and all this stuff that I had taken for granted in the big corporate world, I was now doing myself. So I'm managing my own email inbox. You know, I'm booking my travel. I'm trying to find the FedEx box, and I can't do any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just a grind for me. Well, the secret to getting ahead was to start cutting those things out of the drudgery zone. But in addition on the Freedom Compass, there's also something I call the disinterest zone. That's where you have no passion, but you're pretty good at it. So for me, that was accounting. You know, I was doing all my accounting myself as a solopreneur, and I was pretty good at it. I could use QuickBooks. I knew how to make the, you know, enter the transactions, all that. I just didn't enjoy it. And that leads to boredom. And a lot of people spend a lot of their work life in the disinterest zone. They're good at something. It's what pays the bills, but they don't have any passion around it. The opposite side of the Freedom Compass, you know, this would be due west, is the distraction zone. You know, this is where you love something, but you're not very good at it but you do it to escape the kind of important work that actually moves your business forward. Right. So for example, for me, that was web development. You know, I'm okay. I know a little bit about web development and I really enjoyed tinkering with my website and playing with design, but I wasn't that good at it. And in fact, 
I had a client, and probably some of, your, of our listeners will be able to relate to this. His name was Greg. And Greg said, I know I need to stop doing web development because it's not my principal business. You know, it's just something I have to do. I have to have a website. But he said, I'm pretty good at it. And I just, I don't want to spend the money to hire somebody. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. How much do you bill at an hour? He said, about $150 an hour. I said, okay. I said, what would it cost you to get a web developer that actually knew what he was doing and could do the job you want done? He said, probably $50 an hour. I said, so why are you insisting why do you continue to pay a not so good web developer by your own admission $150 an hour? Because that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Well, the lights went off and he said, wow, I never thought about it like that. I said, if you would just hire a web developer, it would free those hours up so you could bill at $150 an hour. And even if you pay somebody else $50 an hour, you're coming out $100 an hour for the better. That's how as entrepreneurs, as business leaders, we have to think about the delegation side of it. So that's the Freedom Compass. So good. Yeah, and I feel like I'm in the desire zone in the content room. No matter what you say about the content room, mm. I'm going to keep coming back to. It's funny because sometimes you, and, and I'm just speaking for a friend, sometimes mm-hmm. somebody else's desire zone puts everybody else in the drudgery <laughs> zone. <laughs> <Dang it. laughs> well, Les McEwen was next. Uh-huh. Les with his great Scottish accent. Yes. That was not even a Scottish accent. No, that, that was a good did. try, though. That was a good try. So he talks about as you scale up a company, the company changes so quick that the, the personnel change, yeah. the way you have to sort of uh, structure the leadership change. The CEO yep. has to change it. If, we, if we've grown into the company that we are, I feel like I've had to change three times. Yeah. And if you're not willing to change, it doesn't work. And in this clip, he actually talks about the staffing to get started. You know, you start, then you have a chief of staff, then you, the chief of staff yep. usually lasts about a year or two, and they have to change to something else. All really natural stuff that was confusing to us. Yeah. But we didn't realize, no, the company is radically changing. Yeah. You know, we've gone from softball to football, which means that you're not even playing the same positions yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. It's, sometimes it can be that dramatic. Here's Les McEwen talking about how to staff your company as you scale up. What's a good rhythm for, say, a 15, 20-person company? That's probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast. What should the CEO be doing with their time? How often should they be meeting people? Should they only be meeting with department heads? Have you seen, and I realize it's, it's contextual and it varies greatly, but what's a good healthy structure for that? I think you've got uh, a good, in fact, you're probably in a slightly accelerated position, Don, for where you're at, for a sort of 15 to 20 person business. And particularly, there's going to be a big distinction between manufacturing and yeah. services, not for profit. So, on a 15 to 20 person service or not for profit, and let's say a 35 to 80 person manufacturing concern, what you want to do is have, if you've got a founder owner, they should not be acting as founder owner. In other words, we just do whatever I say every day. They should be acting as CEO in essence and shifting that hat is an important thing. But what I recommend them to do is to start with a chief of staff. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to start with a COO. Start with a chief of staff, which is somebody who you're saying, you speak for me, right? You don't speak in your own right. COO speaks in their own right. If you can't get straight to CEO, which is where you've got to, and it's great, you start by getting a chief of staff and you say, you speak for me, you go to meetings in my place and whatever you say, you're speaking on my behalf. 
that's how you start delegating out authority and responsibility because you can feel safe. You can say, okay, I still, at the end of the day, I'm the one making the decisions. This person's just working on my behalf. Then once you've had some comfort with that for a little period of time, it may not be the same person. Typically, actually, it isn't. At that point, you want to move to CEO, COO. Sometimes it's CEO, president. I don't care what the titles are. But somebody who's making the railroads run on time. And it's between those two roles that that's where you want to have the honest discussion if you want to then get to scale, which says, hey, COO, here's a safe word you can use when I'm flying my visionary freak flag and disturbing everything to the point where it's become (laughs) (laughs) difficult. I'm going to check our conference room for bugs. I think we're listening in on our conversations. (laughs) What's funny, Les, is I had a chief of staff for one year. The company scaled to, uh, you know, maybe two and a half million, three million, something like that. Brought in a chief of staff. They almost doubled the size of the company. And what was really strange and hard for us all to figure out, and there were some sensitive conversations around it, was, wait, the chief of staff clearly worked. I mean, it doubled the revenue of the company, and yet this position is no longer tenable. And so then we went to a COO, doubled the company again. I'm going to have our whole team listen to this because it proves that they sort of did so well, they worked themselves out of a job and actually moved them up into the C-suite to do something else. What you just recommended worked perfectly for us in the last three years. Chief of staff moving to COO. And you were right. It was not the same person. It was a different skill set. No, it is a different skill set. And one of the reasons it works is that the visionary owner, in this case that we're talking about was you, the initial transition, it's a transitional role. And it's important because the visionary owner doesn't feel that they're immediately giving away a whole bunch of stuff. You bring in a COO too early, particularly to a founder owner, the founder owner feels threatened, typically doesn't give enough delegated authority to the COO. The COO feels micromanaged and that they're not being given the degree of delegation that they should have. It usually doesn't work. So the transition that you've made is a really important one. The building block, which is just slightly repeating myself, but I want to use another phrase in here that the listeners might find helpful. The next strong element of that relationship, CEO, COO, I was talking about that safe word thing, which is only semi-joking about. The key thing is this, visionaries, good visionary leaders are excellent, great to have, vital, you can't grow without them. Their red zone, whenever things aren't going well, they become arsonists. Hmm. You want the visionary to turn up each day, not the arsonist. You've got to get an airlock because part of the problem is that visionaries are driven very much by prickly epidermis. You know, if something's really irritating you, you'll think about it and it'll get to the point where, you know, you'll try to let it play out. You'll try to let people sort it. And then eventually it just... Screw it, this got to, we've got to fix this. And the arse, it's like, you remember the Incredible Hulk? You remember those days yes, in the movies? Yeah, yeah. he just started wrecking things. The visionary just turns into an arsonist and comes in with a book of matches and just sets fire to a whole bunch of stuff. Wow. That airlock is often best done by giving the COO a good trusted space where they can say, Don, have you got a second here in the, in the conference room where we can talk about this? And give you space and air to not just have everybody running up this staircase again. I think that was one of our more practical, I mean, just so practical and also comforting. Well, right? for our company, for sure. I mean, yeah. we were experiencing it while we were talking to That's him right. about it. We were it's it like it's getting freaking coaching. <laughs> yeah, loved it. One of my other favorites from this year is an interview we did with David Epstein. Yeah. And gosh, I love that guy. Right. And part of it is, again, what I mentioned before is some of the stuff he talked about was counterintuitive. I yes. love when people give me like a paradigm shift. Yeah. I'm thinking one way and then they bring in this information that makes me completely change my worldview. 
And his was on the idea of the breadth of training, right? That right. like you don't want to specifically always specialize in one thing, that breadth and, and specializing in a bunch of different things actually helps you do better in life in general. Just really, you know, I, I, I didn't sort of buy into it at first, even though I really liked the idea. And I kind of came back after the interview and went, well, you know, I don't know. I think you need to be studying one thing for a while. And then I realized, wait a second, we've created Business Made Simple University. Yeah. We are really sort of taking on and attacking the problem of college debt in very creative ways. My background is the study of story yep. and the study of writing yep. and the, and a little bit the study of business. You would have never put that together no. to create Business Made no. Simple University. No. If you and would yet, have just studied marketing and business and all those- You, you would have just studied what other people were doing. Exactly. But instead, everybody's going, wow, this is new and different, and I can't believe how simple it all is, and it finally makes sense. And Because we never studied that stuff. We yeah. studied story, and we studied yep. poetry, and we studied screenwriting. We studied, And then we studied business. When it went, Wait a second. The Venn diagram has a ton of overlap here. I think David's on to something. Yeah. So here's a little clip from our interview with David Epstein. Why is it that the more you repeat telling a story doesn't necessarily make you a better storyteller? Is that what you discovered? I think you have to do those things. It's not to say that practice isn't important, yeah. right? But there's a classic finding that I mentioned in the book from a wide range of different domains that goes like this. Breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. What you want is to be able to transfer your knowledge and skills to new situations. That's mm. what the work world is like. It's not like a golf course or you can play it over and over. It's how do you take your knowledge and continually apply it to new situations? And the single most important thing that allows you to do that is how broad your training was. So let me just give you an example. Okay. So when the Navy simulated training in response to different types of threats, right, where somebody has to make a very important judgment under pressure, they wanted to see, you know, what's the best way to train. So they trained some people on the same threats like over and over and over and over again. And until they get really good when they're, you know, on that day at responding to a certain threat. And then they train them on the next type of threat over and over and over and over again. And then a separate group they take and they train them and they never see the same thing twice. It's like always a different exposure and they get really frustrated. And those they never get a chance to get good at the one thing. Exactly. And they feel like they aren't learning. So when those people evaluate their own learning, they say, I was totally confused. I didn't learn anything. I didn't improve. I didn't get any better. And then when they bring those people back much later and put them both in totally new situations that neither of them have seen, the group that had the mixed up training with all these broad scenarios didn't repeat the same thing, destroys the group that was practicing the same things over and over and getting better at them. In fact, as more time passes, they start beating them even at those specific things. Yeah, it makes sense because the group that trained over and over on the same context has only had one experience with a new thing, and it was the first time they did the, whatever the original context was. And the other group had plenty of experience trying to figure out what's going on here, that makes a lot of sense. And what that forces you to do, what the trick is, is that forces you to create these generalizable models and skills that you can then apply to new situations going forward. So the situations they were tested on, none of them had ever seen. So it was just a question of who would have an advantage for seeing totally new things. And that breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer turns out to show up all over the place, right? So if you're teaching kids math, instead of giving them the same problem over and over to practice like we do, you want to mix them all up. So instead of practicing procedures, they're learning how to match certain strategies to different problems and create these generalizable models for thinking. And, and that's what you want. To go back to that comic book study, none of those things, years of experience, repetitions, years of experience had no impact on average value or 
the likelihood of producing a blockbuster. Publisher resources had a slight negative impact, strangely. Hmm. The big impact came from the number of different genres that the creator had ever worked in. The more different genres they had worked in, the better they were on average, and the more likely they were to produce a blockbuster. And individual breadth was so important, you couldn't, let's say you had an individual who had only worked in one genre, whereas you had a team of three and each person had worked in one different genre. Then you wanted the team. You wanted the three by platoon versus the one. How much of this is the ability to walk in with fresh thinking? I think that's a huge part of it. At four genres, an individual becomes better than a team on average and more likely to create a blockbuster. So after four genres, you need some of this breadth contained in an individual. So the name of this paper was called Superman or the Fantastic Four. And their conclusion was you want a Superman who's done all these different genres. And if you can't get them, then you put together a diverse team. But as the genre experience went up, individuals got pulled away from teams. So you couldn't recreate the creativity of a broad individual by just putting together a diverse team. So we really needed individuals. We'll be right back with the rest of the best of 2019 in just a second. But before that, let me tell you a story. There's a gentleman on our staff named Doug Kime. Doug is in his 60s, early 60s. He's got a son in college doing really well. His son has a 3.8 GPA. Doug recently called his son and said to him in college, I want you to take your GPA from 3.8 to 3.0 by the end of the year. That is the first time any parent has ever said that to a kid. But there's a reason that Doug said that. Doug said, look, you're taking some courses here that me, as a guy who's hired thousands of people in corporate America, I just wouldn't be interested in, and I'm never going to ask your GPA. What I want you to know is how to create guiding principles that align a team and direct action. I also want you to know how to clarify a message so customers listen. I also want you to know how to create a sales funnel that actually converts email addresses into buying customers. And then I want you to understand how a corporate culture works so you don't create drama in that workplace. Those four things he would learn on Business Made Simple University, and they would make you a much more hireable person in the marketplace. That is really fantastic advice because you know if you interviewed somebody and they said, look, you know, I've got a college degree, but I've also learned some things after college. I learned how to align a team. I learned how to clarify a message so customers listen. I learned how to create a sales funnel. And I know enough about how people work that I won't create drama in the workplace. In fact, people will enjoy working with me. I'd really like to work for you. That kid's going to get hired. Business Made Simple University is full of practical courses that actually will help you add tangible value to your workplace that will make you worth more money. If you haven't checked it out, go to businessmadesimple.com. Get access today. Businessmadesimple.com. It's $275 a year. It's dirt cheap. Compare that to $70,000 a year at some major universities who will give you a bunch of courses that you just won't use when you get into the workplace. These courses you will use for pennies on the dollar. Businessmadesimple.com. Get access today. Epstein was fantastic. In a similar vein, Adam Savage, you know, the host of Mythbusters? Yes. He was probably, I mean, he was up there. David might have been my favorite interview of the whole year. Yeah. Adam was up there, too. They may may have to duke it out. I'm not (laughs) sure. Uh, But he taught, what I loved about him is he's just endlessly curious, and he's he's leveraged that into a very great career, which is famous and rich. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he probably never intended to do it. He's just endlessly curious, and he gives us this permission to be endlessly curious. And in order to do that, we have to be self-aware about 
what we're interested in, what we're curious about. We have to. We, we can't just be projecting an identity all the time. We actually have to get into nerd territory yeah. and, and not be afraid of that. He just gave us permission to do that. Here's my conversation, or a little bit of my conversation, with Adam Savage from Mythbusters. Where we learn, I mean, I create across a wide range of disciplines, and I've done it for hire, and I've done it personally. The most satisfying work I've done is the stuff that I'm super obsessed with. And for me, I'm obsessed with making costumes from movies and narratives that I like and making props and objects that compel me so that when I have them in front of me, they feel like the real thing. Now, neither of those hobbies is useful to the world necessarily. I'm not improving humanity's time on (laughs) earth by doing that. But again, when I scratch that itch, I take that obsession and I follow it. I'm pursuing making something with excellence. I'm pursuing making something of quality. And in order to do that, I have to confront myself. I have to see past my biases, my laziness, my sloth, my desire to not get out of bed. That process is a process of self-awareness. There's no way you can be good at something without being self-aware. I real This is a belief I have. I'm not sure it's true. but Connect self-awareness to this process of creativity. In what aspect do we need to be self-aware in order to make creativity work better? I really appreciate your pressing on this because it's... It, I actually want to create better. That's why yeah. <laughs> I want to know. If I am at the workbench and I'm machining some aluminum parts for something and I screw them up and they're not quite perfect, they're not as good as I want them to be. I have a choice there. I could let them be the way they are, and then I'm slightly dissatisfied with the thing that I make. By the way, when I screw something up, I'm pissed about it. I'm mad. I'm disappointed with myself for getting the order of operations wrong and messing this thing up. So now I'm sitting there with this emotion and this object, and there's this goal of having the thing that I really wanted to make. I have to make a choice. Do I want to let it be this, and I'm slightly disappointed with this object, and then it's just sort of mocking me? Or do I want to take my emotion and sort of let it pass, take some time and go back and remake this thing? That whole process of dealing with myself through the arc of messing something up, repairing it and fixing it and making it right is a process of dealing with myself. I am my own enemy and I'm my own best friend at the workbench. I often think about my company's story brand and how it's two things. It's a company that serves customers and we do that. But it's this other thing in which we all get to grow and be better professionals and better human beings in the process of making something. There's two things that are happening, if I'm hearing you correctly. One, you're making something and the other is you're making yourself. Yeah. You're making yourself into a better person. So you and your business, you make this podcast, among other things, and You will look at this podcast at the end. I'll wager that you will ask yourself, and when you're cutting it and putting it all together, is this represent the thing that I wanted to make? Is this representative of the thing that I saw a need for in the world and wanted to satisfy that need? You're asking yourself a question, and that question is one that only you can answer. And Mm. to me, that's what we do when we create stuff. We face ourselves and we ask these questions. It's not anybody's choice but yours what your output is. In the theme of, you know, growth and understanding we can all be makers and moving forward, you say something that's really simple but extremely profound and easy to forget in the book. You say that time can actually substitute for skill. When you are engaged in the unfamiliar, will you please just say that? Because I think it gives us all emotional permission to go and fail. Ah, oh, I love this. So years ago, I hung out with a bunch of folk musicians and 
they were really excellent musicians. And one of them, I found out, had made his mandolin, this beautiful wow. mandolin. And I was like, wow, how did you make that? Where did you learn how to make that? And he said, I actually built it from a kit and some instructions. And I said, had you done that before? He said, no. And I said, how long did it take you? And he said, about 18 months. <laughs> I realized that what he had done was he decided he wanted a mandolin and he bought this kit and then he just moved incredibly slowly. Now, of course, if he wanted to make them for a living, he would never make a living. Right, He'd right, have to yeah. charge $50,000 per mandolin. <laughs> but in my experience, that's the lesson I took from that was, oh, if you go slow, you don't have to be good at something. You can just make sure, sure, sure as you can be that each step you're taking is the next right step. To me, the idea that time can replace skill if you've got time, and this is also when we're young, we have nothing but time. Time to a young person is the commodity they have to burn. When we're older, time is the thing that goes away. That's why we got to yeah. use yeah. to gather the skills. You say that uh, a screw is better than glue. Another little uh, proverb that gives us permission to fail. What happens when we're going really slow and then we don't get it right? What do we do there? And if you don't get it right with glue, you have this whole <laughs> shitstorm to deal with. You've right. got to pry it off of both surfaces. Glue is a one-way solution. It is not always a permanent solution, and there are glues that you can use to reposition stuff, but in general, glue is a one-way solution, and I always like to leave myself out. When I'm driving through San Francisco, I will almost always prefer surface streets over the freeways because there's no out on a freeway. If I get stuck on it, I gotta sit there until the next exit, but if I'm on surface streets, I have outs, and I'm always looking for those avenues that allow me to adjust my present circumstances. I love Mythbusters. <laughs> and I love Adam. Yeah. I love that we got him on the podcast. That was so fun. He was so generous with us. He was so generous. Amazing. So one of the things that I think all of our listeners and us included as a company are thinking about is how do we create companies and build companies with a new generation that's coming up, the millennials. Right. They really do think different. Yeah. And they think differently. And sometimes they get a bad rap and sometimes they get an amazing rap, but Either way, they think differently than you and I, than the people who came before them. And Lindsay Pollock actually was on our podcast and talked about this, about how to work with millennials. And the big key, which isn't that hard for you and I, but I think yeah. it is for a lot of people, is that helping them understand that their work matters. Yeah. By the way, if you want to do that, get a mission statement and some guiding yes, principles. Yes, 100%. This is a great interview. And so this is just a little bit of our interview about working with millennials and helping them understand that their work matters. This is Lindsay Pollock. You also talk about in the remix the need to explain why we're doing what we are doing. And, you know, it gets back to Simon Sinek's great work in terms of always start with why, which we hear that everywhere. Why is it so important that people know the reason behind our decisions? So it's funny. We all take it for granted. And I agree. Simon Sinek is a really big reason he popularized that word a little bit. But I think it's human nature, right? Studs Terkel did a book in the 1970s about how people want to work for companies where they feel tied to the mission. And we got away from that. But again, I think it's human nature. People want to know that their work matters. And two quick examples, um, KPMG did a program called The Purpose Project, where they asked people, what do you do at KPMG? Not, I'm an accountant, but what's the broader purpose of your job? So one young woman who helped companies with tax credits for uh, building programs in the United States, she said, I'm not an accountant. I keep jobs in America. That's the work that I do. And they started posters and an online campaign. 
KPMG is 27,000 employees. They received 40,000 stories Wow! because people were so eager to talk about it. They jumped out of the big four, their competitive set, to number one wow. on the Fortune Best Companies to Work For list because they tied people to purpose. These simple moments. Another example is working with a group of young bankers who were really disgruntled, and I did some focus groups. And they said, look, I understand that my job is to do grunt work. I understand I'm the low person on the totem pole. Just tell me why I'm doing it. Just <laughs> when you give me an assignment, tell me that the client asked for it or tell me that it's going to go to the CEO. Don't make me feel like a cog in the wheel. And yeah. I think millennials are under a lot of pressure, you know, with all these icons of young business and all these startups and billionaires in their 20s and seeing it all on social media every day. They want to feel like their work is contributing to something. And I think that's the best thing about them. I, I can't even believe when CEOs are to be like, oh, these kids, they want to make a difference. I'm like, why are we considering that a bad thing? I think that's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how I feel too. Not a bad thing at all. And I just think they want a mission. They absolutely want a mission. How and dare I, they? How yeah, dare how dare they? they? Like, what, what's, yeah, what's <laughs> negative about wanting a mission? And, you know, the real gist of it is it's up to you and me to actually be the sort of people who are on a mission. Because if you aren't on a mission, you are not going to attract the next generation. And so you and I have to figure out our mission. Okay, there's another tenet of this, and you've kind of got a bunch of ideas here. One is that primarily it's been a top-down sort of authoritarian structure, and you are recommending a more transparent two-way communication. You actually talk about the importance of being a coach, and you talk about the importance of good listening, be a really good listener. Can you sort of put all that together for me and say, what sort of people do we need to be as 40-somethings leading 20-somethings? I can, and the way to think about it is just to think about social media. I mm. mean, you can just draw a direct line between the days when, you know, the president, the CEO, the Pope, you know, had a voice and yeah. all the rest of us listened and followed because there was no other way to hear us. And now on social media, every conversation is two-way. When you grow up being able to tweet at world leaders and celebrities, how could you possibly feel connected in an organization when you're not allowed to talk to your boss's boss? It just doesn't make any sense. And so this is the one where I sort of talk tough to leaders and say, like, this ship has sailed. <laughs> you have no yeah. choice, you know. But again, good leaders have always done it. Think of the 1970s MBWA, management by walking around, you know. I mean, that's yeah. kind of what we're talking about. And I'm really, really, really deliberate in the book and when I do coaching and speeches. I'm not saying total transparency. There right. is still information that is proprietary. There are still things you can keep confidential. But where can you be 5%, 10% more transparent? Where can you share with your employees what's happening at the top levels of the company? Where can you have more ask me anything sessions and town halls? Where can you put out more memos to let people know where the business is headed? Again, not total transparency, just more because if I can go on Wikipedia or Google, or Yelp, and find out more about my employer than I feel like they're telling me, I am totally <laughs> alienated and uninterested, right? Yeah. And, and that, again, I don't think is just millennials. I think that's all of us.
JJ, that was great. Yeah. Millennials really are wired differently. Yes. I'm, I'm surprised that Lindsay didn't bring up that they're starting to grow tails. That the first time in human history. <laughs> do not write in. No, Please do not shows, write in. The research shows there's, they're growing tails. <laughs> so like 40, 50 years from now, the whole, it'll just be people Everybody's with tails. tails? Interesting. Yeah. I, Here's the, what's great about I missed them. that part You'll of the You'll always be able to tell whether they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Claire Diaz Ortiz oh is our next guest. Claire was one of the executives at Twitter. She wrote a book called Social Media Success for Every Brand. She was fantastic. This is something that people really struggle with, yes. and she has a very helpful framework. You know, one of the things she says is that uh, you know life is like a cocktail party, yeah. and you can't just go around talking about yourself all the time. You have to talk about others. Very true to the story brand framework. Yeah. Here's a little clip of my conversation with Claire Diaz Ortiz. Define branding in, in your terms. Sure. So I think what I like to say here is that social media is really like a cocktail party, right? So think of, you know, you going into a cocktail party, you going into some vague networking event, right? If you have some amazing healing essential oil you want to sell to someone, it's not going to work very well to run into that cocktail party and just start yelling at people you don't know who are maybe your ex-wife's boss's neighbor <laughs> and try to get them to, to buy your healing essential oil, right? right. That's not how cocktail parties are most effective. How they are most effective is you go in, you make some kind of connection. If there's mutual interest, maybe you follow up later and then you, you grow that connection, you grow that engagement until it reaches the more natural place of a sale. And that's really what social media is, is for. Social media is, you know, I like to say it's an engagement ladder and, and at the bottom is maybe getting someone interested in what you're tweeting about or what you're posting about to follow you. And then maybe they start engaging with you on social media and then they click on a link your website and then they join your email opt-in and then they open your sales newsletter and then they make a purchase, right? So social media is the way to get someone on this ladder of engagement to become increasingly interested in your brand to ultimately one day become a, a raving fan, so to speak. So the first step in this is making sure that you are sharing a good story on social media that importantly is not about you. It's about your customer, right? right. And this is all fundamental story brand stuff. Okay. So let's make up a business here. And I'm literally just making this up. I, I, I can't think of a, a client that actually does this, but let's say you've got a, uh, a new 18 hole golf course in some town and uh, you know you've promoted yourself on social media. You've got 350 followers. You want to grow that one. You want to grow the number of followers so people find out about your golf course. And you want people to remember you and actually come play more golf and pay for rounds of golf. They have just hired you to be their social media master. What, give me some ideas of what you might do to share stories specifically as a, as the social media expert at a golf course. Sure. So first things first, content is queen, right? So mm. you got to have good content. Does that mean like tips on how to putt better, how to drive better, like golf tips kind of thing? Well, not necessarily. So we got to think about what our customer wants, what our customer yeah. wants, what problems are getting in the way of that and what life looks like for them if their problems are solved, right? So there are different types of content you could create and, and curate. You could do blog posts or statistics, testimonials, images, so if we think about a golf course, well, probably images are maybe going to work well. That's helpful. Probably testimonials are going to work well. People sharing about their great experience at the golf course. People yeah. understanding that this is sort of showing what you get if you show up. A lot of that. Totally, totally. And then you basically create an editorial strategy around sharing this type of content. And what I would say is most important when you think about sharing this type of content 
is you're, you're going to need to make sure that you deposit more than you withdraw. So what this means on social media is one of the big things that brands get, get wrong is they go into social media like that guy at the cocktail party who just goes in and talks about his essential oil the whole time, right? right? You want to go in and you actually want to provide valuable, interesting content 80% of the time, and then 20% of the time do that call to action. Hey, please buy my whatever. Please come to the golf course. So that's what you really want to be thinking about. So 80-20, 80% free value, great stuff. 20%, hey, here's an invitation to join us. And some of that value that you're providing doesn't have to be yours. Because remember, a big thing on social media on any platform is curation, right? So I don't need to have necessarily written the blog post about how to, you know, the the new trick for a great golf swing, but I can link to someone else's post about it or share someone else's. I'm just trying to share good content so that I build a a followership that is engaged and interested in what I'm sharing so that they're around that 20% of the time when I do say, hey, we've got some promotion this weekend, come on by. I love Claire so much. <laughs> and her, fantastic. Her social media is actually really fun because it, it deals a lot with like being an imperfect parent, like with her kids and stuff. It's really, really funny. So you could do a whole sub Instagram feed on her eyebrows because she's always she's doing, doing weird stuff eyebrows. with her eyebrows yeah. and oh, she shares it. I love her. I love following her. One of the other people that I love from this year, and I'm going to tee you up to introduce this because, yeah. and I'm going to say this because after you got off the interview with Rebecca Lyons, I remember you were teary. Yeah. I mean, it was- It was it, a vulnerable interview. It was, a, it was one of those interviews that was so raw for yeah. both you and for her in just kind of digging into more than just business, but even like the personal side of business. Yeah. And it's not because we're just old. I mean, we're sort of old friends. We're really more old acquaintances. But you know, there's something that as you get older, somebody you've known for 10 or 12 years- you're just you're so refreshed to see them again and start talking and yeah and I don't know what it was but partly she writes books about vulnerability and she's so vulnerable and people yeah. are aching for it it was just a really powerful powerful time and you know one of the things that she talks about is the fact that we're, we're experiencing more anxiety now than ever before mm-hmm. and there's not a whole lot of reason yeah we're not at war yeah you know what I mean and so why and it's it's it has to do with cell phones and all this kind of other stuff but she gives a little antidote for that yeah. a little formula for you know, experiencing this kind of anxiety and i thought it was pretty powerful here's a little clip of my conversation with rebecca lyons the reason why rest is the foundation is because you can't give what you haven't received and so many of us are killing it in the connect and create right we're mm-hmm. just industry we're in corporate and business and we love people and we're output 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 right. output and then we burn out we literally burn out and we, we see feel, it over and we over. We feel and over. isolated and alone. I mean, even just reading the first chapter of Sleep Revolution, I was like, wow, mm-hmm. that actually is a real disorder. I mean, people, their lives are being shortened by this because they just, you're like, what is that internal thing that makes me work so hard and not feel permission to rest? Right. And so I think if you can't rest, we're restless because we rest less, right? Hmm. We're always restless because we don't even know how. Yeah. And so I take people back to the basics of like, hey, God even himself isn't optional about rest, you know? He's right. like, there's this thing called a Sabbath. and Scheduled it in. Yeah. Just make, <laughs> he's like, if I'm God and I rest, then maybe you should take note of that. And he blessed the same day he rests. And I think rest precedes blessing. And I, I've seen that. I've seen that we run fueled by a posture of rest, not running to earn rest. Yeah. And when we ch- kind of switch our week up, like instead of saying... I'm going to kill it till Friday, and then I get to just finally let down. 
But instead of saying like, oh, well, maybe my week starts Sunday and I'm just going to chill. I'm going to like just be filled up with the things that restore my soul, that make my heart sing, walk my dog, go to a movie, yeah. read the best books that inspire me, not exhaust my brain, but just inspire me. Be Have a long dinner with the people that you know, know you well and just remind you how awesome you are. Like That's what rest is. So the right. rhythm of rest is everything like a morning routine, getting outside in nature. Gabe and I walk most mornings if we can at 6.15 in the morning because we're getting three rhythms in one. We're rest- you take any of the kids with you? No. Just you guys. <laughs> you bring no. a dog? Yeah, we do sometimes, yeah. yes. They get yappy and loud early in the morning. We're trying <laughs> to not like wake everyone. But part of it is that I think, that, here's what's cool. Okay, so the sunrise has natural blue light to wake you up, and the sunset has natural red light, which is melatonin for your body. You were kidding. It triggers I melatonin. I am not kidding. I didn't know that. And That's why if, if I sometimes I'll take melatonin when I'm adrenaline's running too high. It probably happens like twice a year, but I don't like it because I wake up groggy. Right. And so the, the only way is you, I just have to walk out in the backyard and stare at the sun. Exactly. <laughs> That's, That's right. Like, I, I, I'm serious. That. Like if you put work. your phone down at night and just go out and take a, a sunset, like look at the sunset, you're going to actually call, like your body was made with creation to actually respond to each other. Like yeah. you're going to slow down. You're going to let down. And you're gonna sleep better. That's why the circadian rhythm is so messed up now because we don't have day or night. We don't, when you get out of the bounds of rhythm, you start to live in a way your body can't be sustained. She was great. Yeah. James Clear also joined us. He wrote the book Atomic Habits that yes. sold, I think, 750 million copies. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's bought four. Again, that's all. <laughs> yeah. Every American has bought two. Yeah. Uh, really fantastic. And I, he was amazing because he has this combination of like being a research-minded person, but also very practical application that yeah. I just think is terrific. Well, what I love about it is we, you and I recently, in one of our just recent podcasts, went over my mission statement, Guiding Principles. Right. And last last week, probably, yeah. two weeks ago. And part of it is critical actions. And when we define what actions we're going to take on a daily or weekly basis, what that actually does is help shape us and form us to be the type of person we want to right. be. Right. And he would say that that's actually casting a vote for who you want to Every be. Every action you take is casting a vote for who. It's a, it's a brick in the wall and you're building a life. Yes. Yeah. And you're building habits inside yourself. We're building a personality or a person. Yep. We don't usually, we just think we, we operate out of this this lack of agency yeah and we that that somehow something outside of us is forming this is us. just who i am yeah. yeah i'm just this is just who i am and uh, i can't change you give that. up your agency you're giving up your happiness yep. in, in many many instances so james reminds us of that here's a clip from my conversation with james clear What have you discovered in the relationship between our habits and our identity because i the reason i think it matters is once our identity is transformed and changed my goodness, we're off to the races at that point. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because I I think this is probably the real reason, the true reason that habits matter. We often talk about habits as being important because they can help you get external results. So they can help you lose weight or make more money or reduce stress. And yeah, it's totally true. They can help you do all those things. But I think the real deeper reason that habits matter so much is that they can reshape your sense of self. They can reshape your self-image. How do you believe something new about yourself? And so I'll kind of walk you through like the way I think about this. You can tell me if this maps with your experience or not, or which pieces of it fit for you. So I agree. I think true behavior change is really identity change. Like it's, it's one thing to say, I'm the type of person who wants this. And it's something very different to say, I'm the type of person who is this. And as soon as you start saying, that's who I am, 
then you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore. You're just acting in alignment with the type of person you already see yourself to be. Right. But as you mentioned, the challenging piece here is you, a lot of times people say like fake it till you make it or something like that. Yeah. And I don't necessarily have anything wrong with fake it till you make it. It's asking you to believe something positive about yourself. But the problem is it's asking you to believe something positive without having evidence for it. And we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. You know, at some point you keep telling yourself this thing and your behavior isn't matching up. And so my argument is rather than worrying about the belief, rather than focusing on the identity to start, even if that's ultimately where we want to go, let's focus on the behavior that reinforces that identity. Um, and so you can sort of think about your habits as the method through which you embody a particular identity. Every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Hmm. If you study biology every Tuesday night for 20 minutes, you embody the identity of someone who is studious. If you, in your case, go to the gym or go to the pool four or five days a week, you embody the identity of someone who doesn't miss workouts. And every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And so the first time that you cast that vote or show up and jump in the pool, no, you don't really think of yourself in a radically new way. But each time you go, you add another vote to the pile. It's like you build up this body of evidence to root that new identity in. Right. And unlike fake it till you make it, which is asking you just to believe something different, this is actually giving you something you cannot deny. You know, eat, no, doing one push up does not transform your body overnight. But man, each time you do it, you cannot deny that in that moment, you didn't miss a workout, that you did cast a vote for being a healthier person. Yeah. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the book, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And ultimately, the goal is not to run a marathon. The goal is to become a runner. The goal is not to yeah. do a silent meditation retreat. The goal is to become a meditator. And once you start to assign those identities to yourself, it's much easier for the behavior to stick in the long run. JJ, a fantastic year. 2019. Talk about just practically applicable perspectives that make it. life better. I love it. Really good stuff. We hope you've enjoyed the year. We're gearing up for a another great year. We're actually, JJ and I are going to keep doing this podcast. We're going to make it even better. Yeah. And we're starting a new podcast, mm -hmm. me and Kula Callahan. It's only going to run 60 episodes, and then we're done. We'll never record another one. <laughs> yes. Why? You're going to have to pay attention. There's a reason. It's yep. going to be called Business Made Simple, so we'll tease you about that. It's probably going to come out April, May, something like that. Yeah. But 2020, I'm, we're going to make it's the a, best of it. Yes, it's I gonna cannot be really wait. Fun. I cannot wait. Make sure you tune in. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>